For decades, libertarians and conservatives were often viewed as close allies. Much of this association stems from the fusionist movement in the, late, in the later 20th century. Being on the American right meant that you supported ideas like free markets, restrained government, traditional virtue, and morality. However, it is increasingly common, especially after the election of Donald Trump, to see libertarians and conservatives at odds with one another. What was once thought of as the soul of the American right, ordered liberty, is increasingly being cast aside for a choice between order or liberty. Stephanie Slade of Recent Magazine, the flagship of the libertarian media establishment, joins us on the AIER standard to discuss why she thinks fusionism is still worth defending. Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm Ethan Yang. Stephanie Slade is a senior editor at Reason, at Reason Magazine, a fellow at Liberal Studies at the Acton Institute, and a media fellow at the Institute for Humane Ecology at Catholic University of America. In particular, she was a visiting fellow here at AIER over the summer, where she conducted extensive research on the fusionist intellectual tradition. Stephanie, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yes, of course. So when we talk about fusionism and the sort of this alliance between conservatives and libertarians, um, where exactly is that, what exactly is that referring to and why are we seeing this sort of tension uh, pop up again? I guess, I think in your art, you've written some articles and you say that sort of after Trump was elected, the American right uh, sort of went, had a soul searching moment. And that's where you really see libertarians and conservatives starting to show their differences amongst one another. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that things between the sort of alliance or coalition that contained libertarians and conservatives during the Cold War era, um, many libertarians and conservatives, I should say, because there were obviously some dissenters on both sides, um, it had seen better days. And the Trump, the Trump years has not been great for that alliance. There's been a lot of pulling apart of those two groups, a lot of criticism um, among libertarians um, of the Republican Party, for example, over the last few years. Um, however, one of the things that I like to say is that I actually think that talking about that phenomenon using the word fusionism is a little bit of a, it, it's, it's an ahistorical use of that word. Because um, if you actually sort of trace back the word fusionism in the con political context, the context of um, you know the American conservative tradition, what you find is that it is a philosophy that was associated with a guy named Frank Meyer, who wrote in National Review um, in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Um, and it really was a philosophical orientation in which he said, liberty and virtue are both crucial. They're both non-negotiable, and they need each other. They're mutually reinforcing. And the American tradition is one in which it has these two pillars that we they can't be you can't trade away one to get the other you can't say we've had we have too much liberty we need to get more virtue so we're going to give up our liberty to get more virtue or something like that or vice versa so what he was talking about was liberty and virtue and a philosophical orientation and not an alliance between conservatives and libertarians but the word fusionism has now sort of been retconned a little bit it's used in in, in the modern era mostly to refer to oh yeah there was that alliance between libertarians and conservatives. And I think that's that's actually not really what the word initially was used to mean. Mm. And so let's get a little bit of context for the audience. When you say uh, this alliance, obviously, I don't, I don't know if any of us were alive <laughs> when that term was actually came into usage or when this uh, quote unquote alliance started. But why exactly? Um, because I remember when I when I was an undergrad, um, you know, when I said I was a libertarian, people would be like, oh, like, you know, so you must like the Republicans or you must like the conservatives. And I sort of just kind of went along with that. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. All my 
all the people who are grieving me tend to be libertarians or conservatives. So why exactly was there any sort of historical link between libertarians and conservatives at all? So one of the ways to think about it was that during the Cold War era, when there was this sort of global, you know, um, geostrategic, uh, almost existential, you know, war, Cold War between uh, the Soviets and the, co the communists and America representing the free world, it was easy to see why conservatives and libertarians would come down on the same side. They would say, we see Soviet communism as a threat. Whether you're a religious traditionalist and you look over there and you see an atheistic, very you know, militantly atheistic um, ideology, or whether you're just a free market libertarian who doesn't care about religion at all, but says, you know, I think capitalism is the right, you know, and a free society is what I want to see. Uh, in either case, you, have, you sort of share a common enemy. That's the idea. There's a shared, there's a common enemy there. And so it was easy for these two groups um, to sort of come together and say, well, we should support America, you know, in its conflict um, against global communism. Uh, and this was represented, again, by National Review magazine, the editors and writers over there, and um, the Reagan administration would be the sort of epitome of this coalition. You have people who really believe that we need to be strong in our orientation towards defeating communism. Um, that, that's true. That's a phenomenon that did happen. And William F. Buckley Jr., who was the editor of National Review magazine, he was very... Uh, it was very important to him to build a political coalition with different groups. You didn't all have to agree philosophically in order to sort of get behind Reagan, for example. Um, so that, that was a real thing that was happening. Again, I just wanted to say, I always like to say, when I talk about fusionism, actually what I'm referring to is something a little bit distinct from that, related, happening in the same period, but it was this, this idea of liberty and virtue being, um, being not, being needing each other, being sort of fused together. That was the idea of fusionism. That was um, that was articulated first by this guy named Frank Meyer, and then taken up by many other many other thinkers during the period. Mm. So let's kind of tap into that more. So you're saying that um, this was a this uh, kind of basically a necessity of more traditionalist types and more I don't want to say anarchist types, but people who basically prioritize liberty coming together. Um, so you're saying that because, right, I guess today, well, I think post-Trump things are getting more interesting. But when I was growing up from like, you know, when I was born in 1998 till like Trump, Trump's election, um, what it mean, meant to be on the American right, per se, was you like free markets. You like um, you think religion is important. You think morality is important. Right. And that's been sort of what I've been raised to believe. So what you're saying is there was a time when the religious types and the traditionalist types are all in one box and the liberty all the time people are all in a different box and none of them really spoke to one another. I don't want to, um, you know, oversimplify things. There were always some people who were purely religious traditionalists who didn't, weren't that interested in free markets, for example. There were always some libertarians who didn't care at all about religion or the idea of traditional virtue in a sort of Judeo-Christian sense. Um, but there have always also been many people, and this is the idea of, that Frank Meyer was putting forward, that the American tradition is one that, that actually fuses these two things. So there have also been many, many people that, that believe that both were important all along. And Frank Meyer's writing and National Review and the, the sort of organizations and institutions and thinkers and um, activists that came out of that movement have been articulating this idea of fusionism, liberty and virtue, you know. We don't, you don't need to be in one camp or the other. In fact, if you care about one of those things, you should care about both of those things. And that was a mm. very powerful and persuasive argument, I think. I mean, I continue to be persuaded by it to this day. I think there are plenty of people who continue to be fusionists in this sense today, both on the, uh, you know, in the libertarian movement and in the conservative movement and in the broader sort of right of center space. 
Um, lots of people still are fusionists, but there still are some people who are dissenting uh, from that mm -hmm. fusionist that fusionist consensus. Some people who are saying things both on the libertarian side who don't like religion very much, for example, um, or who think we should be uh, celebrating lifestyle experimentation, even if that means getting rid of these this sort of traditional um, mm -hmm. ideas about virtue. And on the conservative side, there are some people nowadays some pretty loud factions and pretty um, energetic factions on the right who are saying like we reject your libertarianism, we reject your limited government, we want a big muscular government, and we want to use that power of the state to impose our conservative values on the country, because we, don't, we do not think that your fusionist um, philosophy has accomplished what we wanted to accomplish over the last few decades. They look around and they see a society that's not very virtuous, and they say, forget your liberty, forget your libertarianism, um, mm. we want virtue, and we're willing to use state power to get it. Mm. And so, I guess... Because um, I was raised, I guess I'm more on the libertarian side than the fusionist side. What would, how can you sort of rationalize um, that sort of thinking? What, what would compel someone, say a more traditionalist type, to say, away with your liberty, away with your limited government? Um, I want sort of like this quasi, I don't want to say religious fundamentalist type of government, but it's sort of kind of, you know, the, doing away with the fusion of church or the separation of church and state per se. Not everybody wants to go all the way down the road to eliminating the separation of church and state. Not everybody wants to establish a theocracy. Some do, though. It is a <laughs> there is this sort of resurgence. You hear about Catholic integralists, for example, who really do believe that the, the civil government should be subordinate to the Catholic Church. Uh, I'm Catholic, by the way. I, I reject Catholic integralism. Um, I, I write a lot about why I think that's problematic. But what they what people are looking around some conservatives are looking around our, our society today and they're saying we don't like what we see there's a lot that seems to have gone wrong in our society um i think probably most people would look around and agree with that but what they with you know these particular social conservatives would say is um we feel like um virtue has been lost you know the post-sexual revolution uh, era has been terrible for family formation. People aren't getting married. They're not having as many kids. We're falling below the replacement rate in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, procreating. Um, families aren't being supported. Um, it's, it's hard to afford to buy a house. It's hard to afford. A lot of them will focus a lot on things like, well, you used to be able to um, have a single income family, a single earner mm -hmm. family where, where the man worked and the woman stayed home with the kids and they could live a good life. And they say, well, it's no longer affordable to do that. Capitalism has failed us. Therefore, we need government to be in, to sort of intervene in the economy to help working people to support fam the family and if that means mm. tariffs to um, protect American businesses from foreign competition if that means direct subsidies and industrial policy um, or if that means passing laws I mean some not everybody has the same agenda here but some would say we should pass laws that sort of um, enforce our ideas of virtue. So we should get make it harder to get divorced. We should force businesses to close on Sundays. We should crack down on pornography. We should maybe even outlaw blasphemy. Some of these things would, would mm. clearly not stand under the First Amendment. But um, there's a lot of there's talk about this stuff. We need to we need to use again a muscular government to do more to pr produce the outcomes that we want because they they see this sort of society where there's these these just social outcomes that seem dysfunctional in some way. And I don't necessarily agree. I, I don't know about you. I don't know where you come down on social issues. I don't, again, I'm Catholic. I'm fairly personally conservative. I don't disagree when I look at society that there's things that have gone wrong and that there's not a lot of attention um, on traditionalist virtue. Religiosity is down. Family formation is down, this sort of thing. I'm concerned mm. about that as well. Um, but that we would just differ between about whether we think it's either 
morally acceptable to use the state or and also I would disagree with them about whether they're actually going to it's going to work out like it's a pragmatic question. Is it going to work out in their favor if they try to use the state to bring about these outcomes they want or is it going to make things worse? Mm. And I guess sort of tapping into the necessary fusion of conservatism and libertarianism, uh, what would you say to a more, I guess, more like fundamental economic libertarian type who, you know, wants absolute free trade, privatize everything? Why should uh, these more libertarian minded people care about virtue, morality, um, some like sanctity of family, what have you? OK, so I think, again, there's lots of arguments that you can make. And some of them I might just say, like, actually, I think that these these traditionalist virtue arguments about virtue are are true. And that if you want to promote flourishing uh, among individuals and among your society, you need you need to respect the tradition that's been handed down to us through, the, you know, through these traditions. Um, but just, I think, on a, a sort of practical level, the argument, you know, the argument that Frank Meyer was making, again, was that. This is the American tradition that we mm. that we that the founders said. You probably probably everybody has heard the famous quote from John Adams that our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people, and it will be inadequate to the governing of any other kind. I mean, the idea is that if your population isn't virtuous, then mm. then you're not going to be a, a free society for very long. Um, and, and I think that there's that this is like fairly intuitively true that, for example, if you have a, a high trust society where there's people are default to being honest, they're not trying to cheat each other or lie to each other or whatever, then you can have more of a hands-off government. And if you have a society that's low trust and where people are constantly trying to lie and cheat and steal and, you know, whatever, um, and harm each other, um, then you're going to need a more interventionist government. You're going to need a bigger state, right, to try to keep the, the order, to keep the peace. So virtue, having, a not, having a, an absence of virtue will spill over into whether the state can be hands-off the way limited government conservatives and libertarians might like. So that's one argument um, for, for like a practical argument for why if you don't have virtue, if you if you sort of have the erosion of that tradition, those traditional values, then um, you're probably going to end up with a with a cult. You know, you're going to need a bigger state. Mm. You're going to have people who start calling upon the state <clears throat> to come in and, and, and do things um, <clears throat> that might otherwise be able to be to be other to solve problems that might otherwise be solved by individuals and by civil society institutions and by communities and families. But if you don't have strong civil society institutions and you don't have strong families, um, mm. then they're not going to be able to solve those problems and people are going to start asking the state to do it. That's the idea. Mm. So it's, it's fundamentally just a more realist critique of essentially trying some libertarians who would try to make everything into an e economic equation, you know, like prioritize everything, voluntary people interacting, uh, maximize utility, that kind of stuff. And just saying, wait a minute, that's not how people work. Uh, people are social beings at the, at, uh, at their base form. And there are certain things that go on in the market that some people might not like. And if you let it split out too much, then you get, um, they're going to try to solve it one way or another way. And you probably want rule of law, and some sort of process to it rather than vigilantism or just people going on forming their own their own state, perhaps. So it's I, just a, Yeah, I mean, listen, I understand that there are plenty of libertarians who believe that, like, people experimenting by, state, by forming their own local states, you know, polycentric state governance and all of that, like, that's not necessarily a thing that is, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's some interesting ideas there. But one of the things that happens if you don't have, again, a, str a strong civil society and strong communities and sort of just a, a baseline level of virtue out there, what, what you run the risk of is not just like anarchy, but strongmanism, right? 
mm. people demanding a, a, a strong leader to come in and impose order on society because they, they're so sick of the chaos. And I think we, we have seen in the last few years, both here and in other countries, some of that appetite for a strong, muscular leader um, because of, and, that, and this is clearly a response to a, a feeling that there's, there's too much chaos, there's too much disorder, there's not enough natural virtue. Um, mm -hmm. Society isn't governing itself at, at a local level and, and through private institutions the way people would like, and so they're going to look for governance elsewhere. Mm. So when you say that um, the sort of the sort of fusion of these two ideas into something that's more or less essentially just the synthesis of what America is all about from its founding. Um, what were some of those big thinkers? I know we were talking privately one day, but I mentioned Buckley, and you said that Buckley wasn't necessarily a thinker more than he was sort of a ringleader for all of this. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from him. He obviously founded an incredibly influential magazine, and he wrote many books and all of that. But he was a coalition builder, and he made a point when he founded National Review in 1955 of going out and recruiting um, people to be senior editors of the magazine from these different camps. So he went and found some libertarians and he found some religious conservatives and he found some um, recovering communists, people who had sort of defected from mm. the com from literally the com being members of the Communist Party, people like Whitaker Chambers. Mm. <clears throat> and he brought them all in and sort of <clears throat> built a coalition um, with them. And he wanted to have a diversity of perspectives represented in the pages of the magazine. And then he wanted to sort of make the case that they could all be in the same room and get a lot, sort of play nicely together in order to accomplish something such as, for example, getting somebody like Ronald Reagan elected to the White House. And it was successful, right? I mean, that, that coalition worked. Um, it, it, they, they did elect Ronald Reagan. They did end up sort of living through the fall of communism, which was ultimately this, this incredible goal that they all had. Um, so again, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from Buckley. He was such an influential figure, um, but part of, but, but he was, in many ways, he was the man behind the curtain, or he was the person who created the forum and brought really smart people in who then articulated different ideas and, and also worked to, to advance their cause in the political arena. Mm. And so... How, why do you think these people, these disparate ide um, ideologies kind of got along with, e with each other? Because I know, um, I don't know if Milton Friedman was part of this. I know he was more like the 1980s when he came to prominence. But, you know, I'm, I'm just imagining uh, a more religious conservative type and a more free marketeer type. Just, you know, one knows all about social issues. The other knows all about economics and just in the room. Well, what made them actually say not just, oh, let's get along so we can defeat communism, but let's all get along and be part of something that actually creates some sort of new ideology or new type of movement. I think there was a lot of buy-in to the idea of fusionism, the actual ideals of fusionism. So again, when you, when people like Frank Meyer and others would write articles and, uh, and they would say, liberty needs virtue. You can't really um, have, a, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, a free society if you don't have virtuous people, or it's, it's very likely to devolve or collapse into something not very free and not very, not very pleasant if you don't have a virtue. Um, and conversely, virtue needs liberty, that if, you're, mm. if, you're, if you have a, a state that's just trying to impose virtue from the top down, people are never able to make free choices for themselves, they're not really, there's really not very much virtue in that society, right? That doesn't seem like a very good society in which people are going to flourish and reach their highest human potential. So these arguments, I think, were very persuasive to many people. I think a lot of these thinkers were, as am I, bought into the idea that these two things do need each other, that they really both are non-negotiable. They're two sides of the same coin and so on and so forth. Um, 
And so I, that, that, that is, I think, was a very powerful message that, that the conservative movement during this period really rallied behind in many ways. So you had famously the founding of the organization, the Young Americans for Freedom, and they put out a statement you know, that, that was, it was called the Sharon Statement, the principles that they were going to represent. And it was thoroughly fusionist. So you have these young, young Americans, mostly college students, rallying together to start this new organization to put forward these ideas um, that, were, that was fusionism. They, they believed in this. So I think, I think the ideas um, are powerful and are persuasive. But on the other hand, I think there were also always all along some people who said, well, I'm not fully bought into the philosophy that's being articulated, but I am willing to um, be a part of an organization that is open to me articulating my ideas and me voicing disagreement um, along with other people who might disagree with me, but we can still all get along. Like it was it was a sort of like literally a safe space for ideas, for, mm-hmm. for uh, you know, intellectual diversity um, in the same way that you have the Federalist Society today, this legal organization that's so famous for holding debates. They're, it's a debating organization. They want to have different sides of the of the issues represented at their conferences and that they're on their panel discussions. They want it to be a space where people come in and they butt heads and they sharpen each other by through the act of debating. And so I think that if you're somebody who who is open to you know sharing a space with people you disagree with, you know, you're going to like that. You're going to feel like you're welcome there even if you don't fully buy into everything that somebody like Frank Meyer was was arguing for. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the putting aside the people who are mostly just there because they like the environment, the, the ideology itself or the idea of itself is sort of like this somewhere between libertarianism and conservatism. It's believing that we need markets to flourish, but we also need some sort of limited government, uh, some sort of order, essentially arguing for ordered liberty. Like a lot of, I remember a lot of um, my libertarian friends who are more purist libertarians would always say like, what is ordered liberty? Like we just need liberty or something like that. So what exactly do you think was the the ultimate synthesis? Was it supposed to be like this big, huge big tent where it's just like, this can go either way, but at the end of the day, we're, we're all sort of like this big tent called ordered liberty, or is it supposed to be something a little bit more concrete than that? So I think when I talk about fusionism and when I advocate it, when I defend it, um, what I'm talking about is something that is, I think, much more concrete, is a framework that says, okay, you have these two things, liberty and virtue, right? They're both important. We, we, we can sense that they're both important. The American founders obviously thought they were both important. Um, we, we can see how they rely on each other, but, you know, it... it more practically, what does that mean? Well, what it means, I think, I mean, in the, in the fusionist tradition, the way it sort of shook out, um, and the best way to understand it, I think, is that you should think about liberty as being the highest value when it comes to political, political, the political sphere. Um, if you're talking about public policy and what the role of the state should be in society, then you should be thinking in terms of maximizing liberty. Um, but if you are and protecting individual rights, that's sort of what it shakes out to. So the state's job is to protect. Uh, your life, liberty, and property. It's to protect people from being assaulted, you know, robbed, raped, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, defrauded. That's the state's job. Um, And so in this political sphere, liberty is the preeminent value. But in the non-governmental sphere, um, when you're not talking about public policy or the role of the state in society, but you're talking about the role of me in society, you, our family, our community, all the various institutions and organizations that have nothing to do with government, the highest value should be virtue. We exist, I mean, the whole point of having freedom is to then pursue excellence in our life, to be the best versions of ourselves, right? So virtue is the sort of guiding, um, the guiding star there. 
And this, this framework that, dis that distinguishes between the two spheres, governmental sphere and non-governmental sphere, and says liberty here and virtue here, is, I think, the, a contribution that fusionism makes to helping us to think through, okay, well, both those things are important, but when they're in tension with each other, how do we determine which one sort of wins out in any given moment? Um, so that, that was a, that's, I think, one way to think about these, uh, fusionism is, is the distinction between these two spheres. And, the, of course, the purpose of having, uh, the purpose of having liberty, having, having a government that protects our liberty, that protects, that sort of keeps the peace and makes sure that we are free, <clears throat> is that that's the proper role for the state and society, just like a parent has a proper role and a teacher has a proper role. The government has this pr proper role that then would produce, hopefully, the environment or the conditions that would allow us to then flourish and be virtuous people in our in our private lives. And, and by private lives, I don't just mean like when you're sitting at home or when you're at church, but like in our lives as we live that has outside of the political decisions we make. When we're not at the voting, you know, at the ballot box casting a ballot or whatever, but when we're living our lives, we should be pursuing, pursuing virtue. But we need to be free in order to be able to do that. Mm. So everything you said, I, I obviously agree with, but I guess what I'm curious about is that that sort of just sounds like common sense or good statecraft. <laughs> so wh who exactly is not a future? Like, where do you draw the line of, okay, now you're, uh, for example, like a progressive might say, I think most Democrats, you know, Democrats believe in virtue. They believe in uh, markets, just maybe not as much as a conservative, but, you know, if you just want to take it as maximize liberty, um, also have a virtuous private sector, you know, what, what exactly does, um, do you start to draw the line and say, no, you're progressive, that's what we're, you, we are actually against you. Um, and, and I guess, how would you distinguish progressive um, in the American sense, like not totally, you know, full on European style? So yeah, when do you say, okay, you're, you're just more so on the leftward fringe of fusionism? And, and when, when do you say you are a progressive? What does that mean? There's, there's two things I would mention. One is that when I talk about virtue, I really do have a very traditional Judeo-Christian understanding of virtue. And not everybody shares that, right? We have to recognize that, like, lots of people, um, especially on the left, on the progressive left, um, but in some of my libertarian colleagues, for example, would just not share my understanding of what is virtue. So the, the fusionist conception of virtue is that we respect, we respect tradi tradition. So through the um, through the millennia, this tradition was handed down to us of what is virtue, what what are the conditions that lead to human flourishing, what makes for a good life, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a good person, and so to receive that tradition and to be respectful of it, and to not say I'm going to throw that all out and say that what virtue is is what I say virtue is, right? Mm -hmm. That is a, a really important part of all this, and that's what makes it a little bit conservative is we're, we're the respect for tradition that we've been that we've inherited something and so we should not it's very chestertonian if you know chesterton spence and that parable mm -hmm. <clears throat> we're not going to throw away um or or light fire to something because we don't understand we don't understand what it's for and say we're going to we're going to replace it with something better that we've dreamed up in our uto utopian imagination mm -hmm. but rather through trial and error human beings have learn some lessons about what, what leads to human flourishing and what doesn't, what are the paths that you don't want to take because they lead off a cliff or to a dead end. Um, so that respect for inherited wisdom and for also the sort of divine or transcendent component of virtue that is, that has been inherited in the Judeo-Christian tradition, that's all very necessary, I think. Um, I don't think you, you can lose that and still have fusionism. So some of my colleagues who I love and I'm very close to at Reason Magazine who are atheists 
are probably not going to be technically speaking, they're not going to qualify as fusionists, right? They just don't share my my understanding of virtue, and they don't really probably think it's um, that important. Uh, though they may, there may be some crossover where they say, well, I don't believe in your God, but I see that family formation is important or something like that. Um, but for the most part, I think there has to be a pretty, a pretty deep, uh, sort of a, a deep commitment to those, to that traditionalist component of virtue. So that's one thing I would say if I'm drawing a line. Um, <clears throat> and I think that you can see how that does exclude people, um, both, you know, on the left and in the libertarian camp and, and maybe even some conservatives would suddenly say, wait, wait a second, I'm not a, I'm not a fusionist anymore mm-hmm. if, you, if you define it that way. Um, the other piece is, I think, what you were getting at, which is um, how willing are you to accept market outcomes, even if you don't like them, right? How, how much do you trust uh, the market to produce um, efficient outcomes and to, uh, and to produce better outcomes than what could be socially engineered by the state? And I think... There is, of course, um, there, there can be disagreements about how much we should trust the state, but, but for the most part, if you believe in liberty, if you believe in this, the, the idea that uh, the highest value in the governmental sphere is to protect individual liberty, that should, I think, encompass a free market. It should allow individual people to make decisions for themselves, including in the economic sphere, about how to make a living, about to, what to buy and sell, right, about who to trade with. That stuff all counts as part of what the government's job is to protect, is to protect your liberty, including your, your right, your, your economic liberty. That, that's part of what it's all about. And some, many on the left have a lot less uh, willingness to, to accept that. They, they want to socially engineer certain outcomes. They say, we need more re- redistribution. We need to choose winners and losers. They, they wouldn't use that term, but that's what they want to do. And many on the nationalist right or the post-liberal right some of these factions who have moved away from rejecting fusionism and embracing big muscular government, they also are saying, we need, we, we need tariffs, we need industrial policy, we need to intervene from Washington, intervene in the economy from the top down to produce better outcomes. And as far as I'm concerned, that is a violation of the fusionist principle that um, you, should have, you should have as free a market as possible, as free trade as possible, because the government's job is to protect our freedom. Oh, and a really important point that Frank Meyer used to always make about this for why is economic freedom such an important part of this? Um, you're, you're saying, like, couldn't somebody be in favor of, like, a robust welfare state and still be a fusionist? Well, what Frank Meyer would say, and I think he's right, is that you already have to concentrate so much power in the hands of the government in order to keep order, right, in order to protect people's freedom, that if you additionally give it more power to, to sort of be meddling in the economy, you have a dangerous concentration of power. And that's the thing that conservatives and libertarians both should be very nervous about. We should be very nervous about the idea of concentration of power. We don't want one entity that both has sort of the ability to arrest people um, for in order to protect people's individual rights. And that's trying to decide what is the right, um, you know, amount of widgets that a particular uh, the industry should be producing. We don't want that much power in any one place. And so leave that stuff to the market and have the government do what it what only it can do, which is keep the peace. Hmm. So what sort of uh, Republican president besides Reagan, because obviously Reagan was definitely a great victory for the fusionist movement, because um, I know a lot of people look up to Goldwater. I don't know what people really think about Eisenhower. So what exactly does, uh, and then I guess if you go back, like I know it's Calvin Coolidge, a lot of libertarians look up to Calvin Coolidge. So is, are there any presidents throughout history that we can point to besides Reagan and say this is what fusionism is all about? 
Not presidents. Um, certainly not presidents. I, I think there have been, I mean, I, I was a big fan of Justin Amash, who just uh, left Congress last year, two, two years ago now, um, who um, I think is a really brilliant articulator of fusionist principles. He believes very much in individual liberty mm. and limited government and free markets. Um, but he's also, I believe, Armenian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. He, he's, he's Christian. He's um, definitely Christian. Yes. Uh, so I, yeah, I should have known that answer. I will look that up so I know it next time. Um, I forget what what he is, but um, he, I think that he believes that virtue matters, right? I think he I think he accepts the importance of inherited wisdom, um, but but I don't think that he wants to use the state to impose it on anyone. That's what we're looking for in in politics. That's been in, in actual politics, you know, among hmm. presidents and senators. That's been a little bit um, hard to find. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. So I think the I think that the because the fusionist idea was so influential for the last forty years or so, um, it has certainly had played an influence in the types of things that I think many representatives and senators uh, from the Republican Party had fusionist sympathies. I just think that when you get to Washington, oftentimes they end up abandoning them in order in order to pursue mm-hmm. this for, for, for political expediency. Mm. I guess yeah. The, the the false the faulty premise of my question was that we're looking to politicians for virtue and and principles. So that's kind of a non-starter. Um, I guess when does the fusionist movement start to become less relevant? Maybe starts to fall apart. So I know Reagan's president, and then uh, H. W. Bush comes after Reagan and W. Bush. So would you consider any of those two uh, more along the lines of fusionism, or is that stepping into what we would now call neoconservatism? If it is, is there a difference? Yeah, the neoconservatives were part of the fusionist. This this period, again, when Buckley was building a coalition and <clears throat> Meyer was articulating the fusionist philosophy, the neoconservatives were part of that, and, and so they were there. Um, I, I struggle with how to answer this. It depends how purist I want to be. <coughs> um, none of them were perfect. Even Reagan himself was not a perfect fusionist. They all get to Washington and, <coughs> yeah, they start making compromises. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I think there has been a drift away from fusionism over the last decade or so. Like, I would not hold out. George W. Bush as a fusionist icon. He expanded the government in various ways, um, you know, prescription drugs and spending and all of that. Um, but I think that that was less of a departure than Trump, for example, who believed in mm-hmm. protectionism, tar- you know, high tariffs, mm-hmm. top down, picking winners and losers um, in the economy and all of that sort of thing. <coughs> and by the way, when it comes to the just generally being personally committed to virtue in this in this traditionalist sense, George W. Bush was clearly a more virtuous person than mm-hmm. Donald Trump and many of the conservatives, um, the new right conservatives today. So, I think there has been a drift. I wouldn't hold out anybody as a perfect a perfect icon of fusionism, but I do think that we've been sort of moving in the wrong direction, especially in the last few years. And and, and by mm-hmm. the way, again, on the on the new right, when you sort of listen to some of these national conservatives and post liberal conservatives and neo reactionaries and all, they'll say explicitly, "We reject fusionism. We reject Reaganism. We think that you guys were the the problem, and we want to try something else, namely big government." Mm-hmm. So when it comes to so why do you think 
there is an appetite for Trump to the point that, I mean, he, he was elected. Not only was he elected, but he fundamentally changed uh, the American right. So was it always bubbling up the sort of more traditionalist big government tendencies? And if that's the case, do you, would you be able to say um, that in the fusionist coalition, the more econ liberty types were the ones that were the loudest for having their voices heard? Because that's generally the narrative coming out uh, from the nationalist right is that they like the fusionist coalition. Uh, they're all fact, they're actually for it, but they just don't like how the libertarians got so much power, quote unquote. Right. Well, the problem with that is if you actually take seriously this idea of two separate spheres, a governmental sphere where the government's job is to protect liberty, and then the non-governmental sphere, which, by the way, should be huge, much larger. And, you know, it sh that's the real place where our lives happen is the non-governmental sphere. Um, it's much more important and much bigger. Um, and in that sphere, virtue should be the, the highest value. Um, in politics, government, in our, in our politics, you know, we shouldn't be trying to use government to make people virtuous. That's fusionism. If you are saying, I like fusionism, but I just want to use government to make people virtuous, well, you're, you're not fusionist. You've abandoned the, you've abandoned the framework, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> what I do think they have a point in saying is that when, you, when we step outside of talking about government policy and we start talking about what have we been doing, you know, again, having nothing to do with government policy, but as far as institution building in the private sphere, in the non-governmental sphere, have we been really focusing on culture change and institution building and promoting virtue? Have we been living virtuous lives ourselves? Have we been modeling these virtues that we are saying are so important and that are necessary for a free society? Have we been, um, essentially, have we been answering the left's attempts to take over cultural institutions um, and use them to promote their ideas about what is virtuous or moral or, or whatever? Um, no, we've done a terrible job of that, right? Mm. As a mm. traditionalist, I look around and I say, like, the left has taken over all the, all we often say, the commanding heights of our culture, right? Mm. Academia, Hollywood, mainstream media are all uh, sort of have been claimed by the left, and they're articulating a totally foreign and alien uh, idea of virtue, um, and that that is seeping into our culture, and it's undermining the foundations of a free society. So we need to do better uh, um, in the non-governmental sphere at producing, at pr at producing a virtuous people, right? We, we, have to, we have to be focused on that um, way more than I think we have been, uh, if you believe in, in virtue the way I do. Um, but you cannot cross over and say, um, mm -hmm. we, we, we should therefore use the state to do it. That, that would be an actual rejection, a repudiation of the whole idea of fusionism. And I guess quickly on that point, do you think that sort of comes from like the natural tendencies of like more left-leaning people to favor more cultural jobs? Like they like to do journalism, they like making movies and you're not, you know, there's not that many conservative movies out there, quote unquote, like Little Pink House was a thing, but I don't really, yeah, I don't, I don't even know if the audience really knows what Little Pink House is. Um, uh, they I should guess, look it really, up. It's a great, it's a great documentary. Yes. <laughs> it's a great documentary about the Fifth Amendment of all things. <laughs> but, yeah. So, yeah. Like, do you think there's just some sort of like, like the the right is essentially at like a, at like a weird mismatch? There's just not people that want to go out there and influence the culture like the left does. Yeah. I, there's often people will have conversations like, why are we so bad at this? <laughs> why are we losing mm -hmm. in the in the non-governmental sphere when it comes to the culture and building institutions and all of that? 
um, why have we lost? Why have we ended up in this place where we look around at our society and we don't see very much virtue, or at least we don't see um, many of the virtues that we think are important? I, I should say there are plenty of ways in which I think there has been moral progress, right? Like on uh, over time, if you are a minority of any kind, if you're a woman, if you're a racial minority, um, there's a lot more opportunity for you in our society today than there was 100 years ago or 50 years ago. So there is there is ways in which I think we become, we're becoming a better society, freer, fairer, you know, better in a moral sense, <clears throat> in a virtuous sense. There are also many ways in which it, society has gotten worse. And when we talk about family formation and religiosity and, um, you know, pornography addiction and all of this stuff, that's those are real problems. And so, like, why have we not done a better job of this? Yeah, I mean, people have floated a lot of possible reasons that conservatives tend to be more, um, co you know, committed, like, if you're, if you believe in free markets and free market economics, you want to go out and start a business as opposed to going and working at a charity and you know, something like that. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the explanation for this is, but I know that we need to do a better job of it. We need to uh, reprioritize, I think, culture and institution building, private institution building, as opposed to winning elections. Um, if we want to sort of stop this this collapse that's happening or this move. This, this real rejection that's happening of, of fusionism. Mm. And I guess on that note, I know a lot of uh, classical liberals, libertarian types, uh, especially I'm a member of Students for Liberty, a lot of, there's a lot of internal debate about uh, perhaps like aligning with the Democrats or progressives, for example. So what is your argument to, uh, I guess, more liberty-minded types who look at progressives and see like, oh yeah, well, like we can get, Marijuana legalization and criminal justice reform, um, and there. And but I think a lot of my friends would go on to say even further, like, and therefore there should be a progressive libertarian coalition. Like, where, do you see any value in that, or you think the libertarian type should be more careful when they say that? No, I mean, I, I, I think I'm willing to be willing to work with anybody who agrees with me on a particular policy issue. So when it comes to the many issues in which libertarians tend to align with more align with people on the left on immigration on criminal justice reform right on a lot of issues i, I would love to work with the left um to get to make progress on that um but two things i would say one is that actually you have more sustainable i think progress when you build a more broad-based coalition so on criminal justice reform for example you actually get more done we got we have had progress we've had um some surprising successes over the last few years, in part because we sort of <clears throat> started making the case to the right that, like, hey, maybe um, maybe locking people up is not a small government um, mm -hmm. value, right? Maybe we should not trust, for example, the state with the power to execute people because it doesn't do anything else well, so why would we think it would do that well? Maybe we should hold um, law enforcement agencies accountable the same way we want to hold other government agents accountable. Um, when you make those arguments in a way that could be appealing to people on the right as well, I think you're more likely to per to persuade a broad-based swath of Americans, which then will produce reforms that actually, like, don't just get reversed the next time one party or the other, like, you know, wins an election. Because that's not what you want. You don't accomplish anything if every four years you have a new president and therefore they're reversing all the policy wins that you had in the last four years. So I, I'm willing to work with anybody who agrees with me on an issue to get to get something done, right? To to make to to make to reform something that could be reformed to make things better. Um, what I have found, and I think what most libertarians have probably found, is that folks on the left, generally speaking, don't aren't that interested in being in a, in a coalition with us. And the reason mm. is that they think that free market economics is immoral. That's one of their values. They think that mm. believing in a free market sort of um, 
you know, system is immoral and that if you're a good person, you must agree with them on economic interventionism. And so they don't really want to be in a coalition with somebody who believes in free market economics. So I haven't I haven't seen that there have been very many opportunities to, like, build a coalition, sort of build bridges to the left in that way. And I suspect that will continue to be the case. Um, and, and so like, but but as far as again, when we're talking about actual like policy um, coalition building and actual politics, this is different from when you're when you're laying out a philosophy for like what is your understanding of a good life and a good society. Um, and when we're doing that, I'm going to say, well, it's non-negotiable for me that virtue is going to be an important part of it. Um, but but when we're talking about policy, yeah, I'll work with anybody. I don't I don't see a problem there. Mm. So I guess to wrap up, I'd like to ask you one final question. So to allude to the back to start of our interview. Um, the American rights essentially having a civil war, it's going off in all sorts of different directions. Um, the progressive left is ascendant and the sort of centrist, not, I don't want to say centrist because it's certainly a very strong belief, uh, but the fusionist ideal of markets and virtue and basically what I believe would be sort of what America is all about. How do you, how, how do you think we go about sort of re making it more, yeah, bringing it back into relevancy, the sort of, you can have both your markets and your virtue, you can have an upright society that flourishes, this very inspiring vision. How do you really repopularize that amongst Americans? Uh, what, one thing I would say is that I do think, there, like, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, that, that like, the far left is ascendant, because I think Biden's election, Biden has not done very many things that I like or agree with, but I would say the fact that the people chose him, the fact that he won the Democratic primary going up against Bernie Sanders, and then he won in the general election, suggests that there was an appetite, including on the left, for at least more reasonable rhetoric, for more moderate policy, um, you know, agenda, um, there was some blowback, I think, to some of the more far left and socialist stuff that was happening there. Um, we, the um, victory of uh, Youngkin, uh, the governor of Virginia, who was basically in favor of school choice and against, you know, like th there, there's blowback to the more extreme stuff happening on the far left. And now with this most recent election, I think you're having a little bit of blowback, some of the more extreme stuff happening on the far right, the election denialism, the conspiracy theories. Those folks did not, those Republican candidates, for the most part, with a few exceptions, did not win the um, the new right mm -hmm. folks. So I think there really still is a lot of potential for the like sane center of America. People who, when you poll them, say things like, um, "The most important thing to me is that we have a government that respects individual rights and liberties." Like when you poll them, most people say that they still agree with that. So uh, there is potential here. Um, it, it's a uh, uh, tense moment because there's a lot of stuff going on on the fringes that's pretty dangerous and they're getting a lot of attention and there's a lot of energy there. But I would just, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic actually, um, that, that there's also, a, there's, there's, it's, our system is self-correcting uh, in many ways. And we're seeing some of those self-corrections happen in, in the political sphere, um, you know, over the last few years. So I want to, I want to celebrate the, that and try to keep that stuff going. And, and then again, you know, we gotta not we gotta not neglect the non-governmental piece. Like we should be fighting to roll back government, keep you know limited government, free markets. That stuff is so important, so important. And I will always oppose um, politicians who think who, who you know want to be strong men, who want to wield the power of the state to go after their enemies. I will always be against that. Um, but I think we also need to be thinking a lot about like how can we build a healthy, flourishing like civil society as well. We, we need to do better there. Stephanie Slade, 
senior editor at Reason Magazine and former AIER visiting fellow. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. If you liked what you heard today, make sure to check out AIER's content on all our various channels like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. I'd also like to give a special shout out to Reason Magazine. Um, I guess if you can tell us a little bit about Reason, how our viewers can access your content. Yeah, we're at Reason.com, very easy to remember. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at SladeSR. And as always to our viewers, if you really liked what you heard today and you want to support more cutting edge researchers and outreach like this, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you. Thank you.